This episode of The Incubator is proudly sponsored by Chiesi. This is The Incubator, a weekly discussion about new advances in neonatology and the fascinating individuals who make this progress possible. I am Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. We are neonatal intensive care physicians. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. It's Sunday, Journal Club. Lots of announcements today. That's right. Mm-hmm. So, what do we start with, Daphne? Uh, the the incubator in Espanol, I think. <laughs> yes. So um, this week, if you haven't noticed, um, <laughs> we released a uh, our first episode of the incubator in Spanish. Uh, this was uh, a long time coming. Uh, Daphna has been uh, planting the seed for this to happen for what months now. Months, um, yeah. And so, yeah, thank you for your persistence. Um, <laughs> and we are going to release basically translations of the Journal Club episodes in Spanish. This is going to be our first order of business. We're going to try to uh, keep up with the Journal Club episodes in English as much as possible. Uh, we want to give a special shout out to mm -hmm. Valentina, to Marla, to Laura, who are uh, the, the the people hosting this version of the podcast. Um, they've been great in, mm -hmm. uh, in, in doing this professionally. Uh, so yeah, um, yeah, thank you. Thank you guys. I guess <clears throat> the biggest delay and the biggest bottleneck on this on this journey is the problem of making sure translation and everything is is there's a high degree of fidelity that there's right. uh, a lot of redundancy so that we make sure that whatever content we provide in Spanish is is of good quality we have a lot of spanish speaking proof whatever we call it there's a proofreader proof listeners yeah that's a good i think that's right? a good way to put it so so we um we are very conscious of of that aspect of it so yeah now how do you access the episodes um they're basically a separate podcast on 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 apple podcast spotify whatever Whatever platform you use to get this particular podcast, you should be able to type in the incubator and um, let me actually do it as we speak. So that I think it's the incubator parentheses Espanol. Uh, yes, it does. I checked it. <laughs> and then we've created on Apple Podcast a, a channel mm -hmm. with all the as as the as, as the, the 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 number of episodes are are increasing the number of podcasts are increasing there's a little channel and you can see all three shows on there the neo review the incubator in english and the incubator now in spanish yeah it's called the incubator parentheses espanol and uh this is the first hopefully of a new mm -hmm. uh array of podcasts where maybe next we can uh devote uh a podcast in french <clears throat> so yeah this is very very exciting all right so that's Announcement number one. <laughs> Announcement number two is finally, finally, I mean, you guys probably don't feel as drained as I am from this process, but we finally have CME <laughs> credits available for the incubator podcasts. 
Um, we want that probably here. should have been announcement number one. It's very exciting. Yeah, I mean, this is well deserved. I think for all the work that we've done to get this done and for the podcast. But first of all, we want to thank. Uh, I want to give a special thank you to Jane Duncan, who's basically the person responsible at Nova Southeastern University for all CME activities. Uh, she's been very nice in making, helping us making this happen. So every the the interviews will not get CME credits. They're they're kind of entertaining more than educational, obviously. Uh, but the Journal Club episodes will each uh, offer you one CME credit, and then the neonatology review episodes. Um, some of not all of them, um, because mm -hmm. obviously the educational content is different depending on what exactly happens. Mm -hmm. um, but each episode that will be given CME credit will be given a half a credit. So the big question is, how do I get credits? And mm -hmm. the answer to that is you go on our webpage and on the episode page, there will be a button that you can click to access a form that you have to fill out, just like any conference or anything where you have to show that you attended and that you can give some feedback. Um, these are standard CME credit questions. We also have questions regarding the content of the episode. So we we are that that was a big issue with giving credit for a podcast is how do you make sure that people right in in um, in conferences you can get people to sign in, sign out, whatever. But in a podcast, how do you know that people have listened to the episode? So we have like one or two questions to make sure that you did listen to the episode. Um, and they're not hard questions. <laughs> they are not hard questions. But And so to clarify, you're saying that after, after someone listens to this episode, they can find it on the website and, and start rolling. Yep. So you get to okay. that. You get to the website. You access the form. You fill it out. You're going to get two emails, technically. One of them that confirms you filled out the form. And another one will have like a little CME certificate mm -hmm. uh, with your CME credit. Um, so this is neat. Mm -hmm. And that's it for our show today. <laughs> Thank you for joining. See you next week. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> <It's only. laughs> yeah, today, for the people who don't know, we're recording this podcast. Um, it's it's interesting. Uh, so, so, yeah, it's interesting. Some people have asked me, how do we manage to record these episodes so early on Sunday mornings? Um, but we we are not recording at five a.m. on Sunday. We're recording this ahead of time. I mean, so sometimes today, we are, but not not, this, not today. <laughs> <laughs> but we have a long recording ahead of us. So mm -hmm. yeah, we are tired before we even begin. So let's <laughs> let's go. So we have Journal Club, mm -hmm. and uh, we have a bunch of very interesting articles as usual. Daphna, you want to get us started today? Um, sure. Yes, let's do it. So I guess I'll start with um, this uh, paper, which is uh, an, another iteration of the, um, the Epipage 2 study. Um, do, do I say that right? I've actually never Epipage. heard anybody. Epipage, of course, the <laughs> French study. Epipage. Okay. So um, it's entitled Early Antibiotic Exposure and Adverse Outcomes in Very Preterm Infants at Low Risk for early onset sepsis, the epipage. There you go. So then it should be it should be epipage de, de. de. epipage de, <laughs> epipage de cohort study. <laughs> um, lead author uh, Mathilde uh, Latauzi uh, of the epipage infectious diseases working group. Um, there you go. I got it. I nailed yeah. it. Okay. <laughs> you did. You did. <laughs> okay. And one of the um, rare times when one of us can actually. Correct the other. <laughs> yeah, um, and this is in the Journal of Pediatrics. 
So the question was really to evaluate early antibiotic exposures um, and looking at uh, later neonatal outcomes in a specially selected group of very preterm infants who are at low risk for early onset sepsis. And I will talk about exactly what that means in just a minute. So is it a valid question? So really they're asking, is kind of our knee-jerk reaction to put the very preterm infant on antibiotics harming babies? So that's what they wanted to Mm. look at. So this, like I told you, is a secondary analysis of um, the French cohort of babies born between 22 and 31 weeks uh, gestation. And um, numerous analysis have been performed on this cohort. We most recently reviewed the five-year developmental outcomes, and um, the Epipage team plans to study the group until 12 years of age, I think, as it stands. Um, so for this particular analysis, what they did is they excluded these um, babies um, that were at high risk for early onset sepsis. So they excluded all babies um, who were delivered after preterm labor or after premature um prolonged rupture of membranes where there was clinical chorioamnionitis or the mother had received antibiotics in the 72 hours prior to birth. They also excluded babies who died in the delivery room or on the first day of life, severe congenital malformations, and um, multiples who uh, had a comorbidity of twin-to-twin transfusion syndrome. So really, this cohort of babies uh, was really um, infants who were delivered for maternal indications like hypertensive disorder, preeclampsia, or for some infant factor like intrauterine growth restriction. And when we talk about some of the definitions, the early antibiotic exposure really meant that they were started either on day zero, birthday, or day one of life, um, regardless of the type of antibiotic or length of exposure. And they wanted to look at the primary outcome was a composite outcome accounting for these competing risks, uh, death and adverse outcomes, including at least one of the following. So, um, Late onset sepsis, which was a positive blood culture after 72 hours of life, and neck. They also wanted to look at um, secondary outcomes, um, death or severe neonatal complications, death or severe cerebral lesions, um, and then also looking at death or moderate severe BPD. So... Well, there's a lot of data in here, but we'll we'll work through it as usual. So the baseline characteristics, so they had a total of 648 infants. Um, There were no antibiotics in, started in 74% of these infants, and then these early antibiotics in 26% of the infants, which I thought was actually quite good. Um, maternal, Maternal characteristics of the whole cohort were a median age of 30. Um, other de- kind of demographic factors, 20% of these moms were smokers, 58% were primips, and 45% were overweight. Most babies received antenatal corticosteroids, which was also incredible, and almost all delivered via C-section, um, which I thought was interesting, um, especially where we practice now. Um, a lot of even the moms with preeclampsia are being um, induced vaginally. Mm-hmm. Um And then infants exposed to early antibiotics were more frequently multiples. They were less likely to be born at a level three maternity unit. I don't actually know much about the levels. I tried to look them up. Do you know in France? Um, It's very different from the U.S., Mm -hmm. but um, 
yeah, so they they do have different levels based on whether. So it's it's an interesting concept, right? Because most of the larger academic institutions are public. Mm-hmm. So it's a bit it's a it's a complete different system. And then the private hospitals in France are usually smaller because they try to just do whatever makes money. Um, mm-hmm. So it's it's completely backwards when it comes to how it looks, what it looks like in the U.S. Um, but they do have, I guess, maybe three levels of care where you do have a level one where they may have an isolate <laughs> just to wait mm. for transport. You mm-hmm. do have level twos where they can do maybe a little bit of CPAP or something like that. And then you do have level threes. Which I don't know highest. which is the highest. I don't yeah. know if they, to be honest with you, where, where my knowledge of the healthcare system may be failing is whether or not they have several distinction within the level three, mm-hmm. whether they do cardiac ECMO. I don't know if that level of distinction is present there, but yeah. Okay. Um, other maternal and obstetric characteristics were similar between groups. Um, the group as a, you know, as a cohort had a median gestational age of 30 weeks, a median birth weight of 1,040 grams. Um, interestingly, and I, I think this is important, infants exposed to early antibiotics had slightly lower gestational age, 29.6 weeks compared to 30.3 weeks, and lower birth weights, 1010 versus 1060 grams. They were more likely to be intubated in the delivery room and need surfactant administration. Um, and they did note that despite these differences, when they looked at initial crib scores, um, which is an illness severity score mm-hmm. that they were not different between the two groups of babies who received antibiotics, early antibiotics and those who didn't, but they did have this, these, these not insignificant differences, I think in, um, in clinical picture regarding antibiotic exposure. So those babies who got antibiotics, um, 88% uh, who got an- antibiotics received it on day of life zero. So birth date, um, for babies who had all the information about the antibiotics, um, all of them received two types of medication. Um, amoxicillin um, was among the most common, uh, 112 out of 165 babies. Um, cephalosporins even more so in 129 over out of 165. Vank was given in 11 and metronidazole in 5. Mm. The good news was the median duration of antibiotics was three days. Uh, the less good news is that four infants were diagnosed with early onset sepsis on day two or three of life in this group of babies who got antibiotics. Um, none of them, uh, though, had received treatment on the first day of life. Um, those babies were um, uh, found to have either um, groupie strep in one and staph aureus in three. And unfortunately, one of the babies with staph aureus died on day of life three. So for the outcomes, so um, while mortality was higher in the early antibiotic group, 12% compared to 6.3%, the odds ratio of early antibiotic exposure in in the association with death was 1.78. So they actually listed that as no association, but I'm giving you the odds ratio so you can do with that information what you like. They said there was no difference in neck, an odds ratio of 1.47, no difference in late onset sepsis, so an odds ratio of 0.93. The overall incidence of late onset sepsis was 25% in the total cohort. Um, They were a a median diagnosis of 12 days. The most common um, 
bacteria were cons, 75%, staph aureus, 15%, and enterococcus, 3%. And then they did find um, an association between severe cerebral lesions and early antibiotic exposure, an odds ratio of 2.71. They also found an association between moderate to severe BPD and early antibiotic exposure, an odds ratio of 2.3. And then when they looked at these composite outcomes, so composite outcomes of death or or late set sepsis or neck, there were no difference in odds ratio of 1.04. And there was no association between early exposure and composite of, uh, of severe neonatal complication, which was um, any of these, uh, mm-hmm. late onset sepsis, neck, cerebral lesions, and moderate to severe um, BPD when they did the composite um, outcome. So I think they were trying to show <laughs> that we should feel good about not starting antibiotics on these extremely low birth weight babies who are not at risk uh, given, you know, pre-existing factors um, for for sepsis. Right. Thoughts? Yeah. Lo- I mean, yeah, lots, lots of thoughts, obviously. Yeah. Um, you mentioned death and saying that they didn't find an association. I guess mm-hmm. that was probably driven because the for the people who are wondering, the, the confidence interval crossed one right. in that yeah. specific one. Um, so that's why. But I mean, you look at the numbers and I mean, it's... Double. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's just like this. This it's what, uh, it's what Daniel Kahneman always talks about, like this loss aversion where you look at the numbers, you're like 12% versus 6%. I don't really care what the confidence interval says. I'm, yeah. I'm still a little bit in shock and it's completely not scientific. And I know it's not scientific. And yet. Um, and that was, you know, higher in the early antibiotic group. So even more, right. no reason. Yeah, and I think I think this is at the end of the day a very important paper, uh, mm-hmm. just because it's got, we have we're so fearful. I mean, I mean, I say we, and I generalize because I'm, I'm, I include myself in this group. But like, we're so fearful of the vulnerability of the extremely mm-hmm. low birth weight infants that we're like, you know what? Like, I'll I'll deal with whatever I have to deal with, uh, but I just don't want to. I just don't want to be the one who loses an LBW to an infection because I didn't start antibiotics, right? right? Um, but if you can have a little bit of, it's a bit like the marshmallow experiment, right? Where it's like, Mm -hmm. if you can have a bit of delayed gratification and you can think about this from the standpoint of cerebral injury, when you're thinking about even, I mean, I guess even death in this case, but, uh, BPD, um, then maybe, maybe we can be a bit more cautious in giving antibiotics to uh, these extremely low birth weight infants. Well, and and what they did, I mean, they were very selective, right? right. So, I mean, these were babies that one might say they potentially have no, there's no such thing as no risk, right? But they didn't have any risk factors, uh, obvious risk factors for for infection. I would have liked to have seen a little more detail about the the babies who... um, did have late onset sepsis and um, yeah. what that looked like. But. Yeah, I guess I guess uh, uh, risk stratification calculators probably mm. on the way. Mm. Probably on the way. Some not, maybe not by them, but by other groups. But anyway, yeah, fascinating. I was really not expecting these outcomes. I have to say mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. that this paper eventually just concluded that um, moderate to severe BPD and ser- severe cerebral lesions were the ones. It's just like I was not. I was surprised mm-hmm. by that. In any case, okay. 
Your Let's turn. See. It's my turn. Yep, it is my turn. I have to locate. Okay. So what should I start with? Dun, dun, dun. All right, I'm going to start with this one. Uh, it's a paper that comes out of the Netherlands. It's in the archives of Disease and Childhood, Fetal Neonatal Edition. First author is Hilke Salverda. Title is Clinical Outcomes of Preterm Infants While Using Automated Controllers During Standard Care, Comparison of Cohort with Different Automated Titration Strategies. We've been so, waiting for this paper. Well, it's the sad, the sad thing, Daphna, is that I have I sort of picked this paper to highlight how the rest of the world is moving along and mm -hmm. especially us in the US are just lagging mm -hmm. behind. So um <laughs> so the background information is interesting, especially like I said, if you're in the US and you're not using automated FIO2 control. Um, but um yeah, so to make us feel even worse, that's not the intention of the authors, obviously, but they, they mentioned how there are many options out there for automated <laughs> FIU2 control. <laughs> they're saying there's no excuse. It's like, there's so many options out there. It's time that we look into and it's like, oh my God, we don't even have one. Um, and so they're talking about the fact that these different FIU2 control uh, tools use different algorithms. And the difference between these algorithms could be important. And, and I'm mm -hmm. going to quote the paper just that because they'd said it very well. They said the one algorithm X, if we call that, may on average keep oxygen saturation higher and have fewer desaturations at the cost of more hyperoxemia, whereas the other algorithm may adhere better to a defined oxygen saturation limits at the cost of more short but frequent desaturation, right? So, right, I mean the how frequently is the oxygen saturation going to be adjusted is really at the core and at the root of these algorithms right uh mm -hmm. do you average the o2 sat over one second over two seconds and then and then are you going to allow a few drops in the in the saturation so it's interesting to compare um the different the different tools that are available and i thought this was an interesting paper too because again our audience is is global so um, yeah, maybe we don't get to use these tools, but maybe a lot of our audience members actually might benefit to, for, to make a practical decision. So mm -hmm. they looked at two different algorithms. They looked at the Clio 2, uh, which usually comes in an, via a ventilator. And then they have the Oxygeny algorithm, which is in the SLE 6000 ventilators. I'm familiar with the Avia. The SLE 6000 looks like something that I've not had the pleasure of working with. Mm -hmm. Um, so they in they, they have a very nice review of how these algorithm functions. We'll post the link to that separate paper on our website uh, if you're interested. Um, briefly, when they when they had compared uh, these these two before, they had seen that the oxygeny algorithm was more effective in keeping the saturations within the range to prevent hyperoxemia and just as effective as preventing hypoxemia. The Clio 2 was uh, showed that it spent less time in the actual target range. So the, the big question was, they seem to say that from an algorithm standpoint, the oxygeny is a little bit better at making sure that your goals are achieved from keeping the oxygen in the right range, preventing hyperhypoxemia. So the question was, does that even matter? Like, is this a big difference? Are these differences clinically relevant? So they wanted to look at the effect these differences could have on short-term clinical outcomes. So they, conduct, they, they conducted a propensity score-matched observational study with... Um, 
electronic patient record data from uh, the their NICU, um, which is a tertiary hospital with uh, 25 neonatal intensive care unit beds and around 100 admissions per year of infants uh, at less than 30 weeks of gestation. What was uh, what lent itself? What lends itself to this study was the fact that they they actually uh, used the Clio two algorithm from 2015 to 2018 and switched to the Oxygeny from 2018 uh, on, and so they were able to actually compare these two uh, algorithms as two cohorts, one of them historical and one of them a bit more current. They looked at uh, infants that were born between 24 and 29 and six weeks at, at birth, and they excluded any infants with major congenital malformation. So in total, they were able to get 121 infants between 2018 and 2020, which was the time where they were using the Oxygeny algorithm. And they basically matched all these infants to infants born in the historical cohort where they were using the Clio 2 algorithm. The median gestational age was 28 and three uh, 28 weeks and three days. Median birth weight was 1,000 grams, 1,034 grams. So let's look at some of their actual outcomes. The respiratory outcome, the Oxygeny cohort had significantly more time during which they received supplemental oxygen. Um, so 17 versus seven days, uh, the p-value was 0 0.045. Now, the big caveat to that is high-flow nasal cannula was not available in the historical cohort when they were using mm. the Avia or uh, the, with the Clio 2. So when excluding periods where infants were supported using high flow from the analysis, there was a non-statistically statistically significant difference, which to me is awesome that this is actually mm -hmm. reported because it mm -hmm. goes to show that sometimes we leave kids on high flow way too long and we just don't have the guts to just try to wean them, right? Mm -hmm. um, and you see this, that when the high flow was not available, the kids got, got weaned a bit faster uh, and on high flow, they just linger. Uh, hmm. And like I've, I've said this on the podcast before, Dr. Ben Kalari used to say, never tell me that a baby requires a certain FiO2 because they require whatever you give them just to, for them, for you to know that they actually require something, you need to actually test that they can mm -hmm. try them off. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So um, the mean inspired oxygen in the first week of life was similar in both groups, as was the mean inspired oxygen during the entire stay. The infants in the oxygeny cohort had fewer days of continuous positive airway pressure, uh, 8.4 days versus 16.7 days. Um, they, um, I'm not going to talk about invasive mechanical ventilation just because for for um, for the for one of the cohorts there was no days on mechanical ventilation, mm. so these kids were pretty healthy, mm -hmm. and there was no difference in, in the need for nitric oxide, dexamethasone, or surfactant. So in terms of the clinical outcomes. Uh, they saw that fewer infants received uh, laser coagulation for ROP in the oxygeny cohort, one versus 10 infants. Uh, there were no statistically significant difference in mortality, culture-proven sepsis, BPD, NEC, IVH, and PVL. Infants had a significantly short duration of stay in the NICU in the oxygeny cohort, um, 28 days versus 40 days, uh, with a mean difference of 13.5 days. And so they conclude that the Oxygeny epoch was associated with less morbidity when compared to the Clio 2 epoch. So um, my thoughts on this paper are that number one, 
um, there's a lot of issues, obviously, with this study. Uh, it's small. Um, mm -hmm. The cohorts are historical. So obviously, the practice, you right. want to believe, improves over time. So the, the all the all the biases that can be introduced within a, with a historical cohort are there. It's a small study. It's a small unit. I mean, the fact that uh, they didn't have... Um, I forgot the... I'm going to tell you, actually. There was one cohort where... Um, the, the 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 more recent cohort had the median number of days on invasive mechanical ventilation was zero. So clearly, you see that they're improving, and they were not very very sick children. So right. um, so there's there's uh, everything to take with a grain of salt. But it's a very interesting study. Number one, it highlights for us in the U.S. that we're we're falling behind. Obviously, right. uh, a little that, pressure on. Uh, obviously. I mean, I was actually able to work with the Clio 2 at the University of Miami because we were part of the trial that uh, is um, trying to approve the algorithm for, by the FDA. But um, I mean, just a few machines, obviously. Um, and um, and so, yeah, I mean, this is something that that I mean, we we're we're falling behind and yeah, applying pressure to the US and mm -hmm. giving people outside the US a little bit of a of an inside look as to um, which algorithm works best. I also think there's going to be a, 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 an arms race when it comes to these ventilators to be able to provide these algorithms in an exclusive manner. I think, right? Uh, I think some ventilators are going to say, oh, we're going to give you this algorithm and they're going to try to push to compare algorithms. There's going to be a lot of competition there as the clinical outcomes are going to be demonstrated to be uh, improved. So mm -hmm. interesting, interesting study. All right. Thank you, buddy. Um, <clears throat> my next study is, um, entitled morphine versus methadone for neonatal withdrawal syndrome, a randomized controlled pilot study lead author, Mary Beth Sutter. Um, this is in, um, BMC pediatrics open access, um, from the university of New Mexico. So the question is really, would treatment for NOWS, neonatal opioid withdrawal syndrome, have shorter length of stay and length of treatment using morphine or methadone? And obviously, this is an important question um, as we're learning more about NOWS, as we're seeing more babies with NOWS, about how can we really reduce um, length of stay for these um, babies who require um, treatment. So this, the study design, it was a single site randomized control study between October, 2016 to September, 2018. Infants were enrolled within 24 hours of birth to either the methadone or the morphine arm. The babies needed to be greater than 34 weeks gestation with an in utero exposure um, of either methadone, oral opioids, or heroin by history or maternal or infant urine drug screen. The exclusion criteria were serious medical conditions, which they don't delineate. Um, they excluded babies who had in utero exposure to um, buprenorphine because their standard there was already morphine therapy. And they initially excluded all NICU admissions, like even if you met the criteria, but you came in for transitional respiratory distress or something. Um, but in 2017, they allowed um, enrollment of infants who were admitted to the NICU for less than 24 hours. So all infants within utero opioid exposure underwent 96 hours of Finnegan scoring um, and infants with two scores greater than or equal to 12 or three sequential combined scores of more than 24 were initiated on treatment um, based on, again, the randomization um, at the time of enrollment. 
um, clonidine could be used as deemed necessary as a second line therapy um, as deemed uh, by the physician caring for the baby. The primary outcome was the hospital length of stay. The secondary outcomes were length of treatment, um, the need for second treatment agent, total morphine equivalence. So this was um, interesting. And they used a, a ratio of four to one for methadone to morphine, um, need for assisted feeding, um, breastfeeding, and other adverse uh, events. So the baseline characteristics, they had 126 exposed infants admitted 39 infants were excluded given that exclusion criteria and another 26 infants were um, who were eligible were not enrolled because either the parents declined or they weren't available for consent. Mm -hmm. um, and they do discuss, they, you know, had a reasonable component of things like uh, DCF holds or um, babies who, um, whose parents weren't going to be taking them home. Um, differences in the groups included um, the fact that mothers in the methadone, mothers of babies in the methadone treatment group were more likely had to have received prenatal care in the first trimester, which was interesting, 69 versus 33%. But both uh, overall, the two groups had a similar total number of prenatal visits. Um, other, substance uh, other substance use was present um, in both groups. But the morphine-treated group had higher rates of tobacco use, methamphetamine use, benzodiazepines, and SSRI, SSRI use. Again, this is no small uh, confounding factor. Um, and then when they looked at the primary outcome, the length of stay was not statistically different between the two groups. Methadone, 16 days versus morphine, 17.9 days, P value 0 0.5. The treatment length was also not significantly different, um, though there was a trend towards shorter length of treatment and shorter length of stay in the methadone-treated group. The methadone group received significantly more morphine equivalents, 33 versus 9.68, um, p-value less than 0.05. And in terms of adverse events, one baby in the morphine group required a uh, clonidine, so as the secondary agent. Three infants treated with methadone required transfer to the NICU for over-sedation or decreased uh, respiratory effort and or oxygen desaturation. More infants in the morphine group required additional caloric support, but this was not statistically significant. And infants in the methadone group spent more time rooming in, but was also not statistically significant. So those are the those are the details. I I think the things to point out um, were that this feature that the babies in the methadone group again it wasn't statistically significant, but more of those families were able to room in, and that was also the group that had lower length of stay and length of uh, treatment. And, and we know that parent involvement in these babies um, reduces. Um, medication need. The other thing I wanted to mention, um, which is becoming an increasing area of interest, is that their hospital urine drug screenings did not include marijuana. So we don't we don't have details about that, but that's obviously becoming a, a hot topic. Mm -hmm. You opened the can of worms right there. Huh? I know. <laughs> well, just putting it out there. Um, 
Yeah, no, that was a, that was an interesting paper. I mean, this is the, these are the types of. I mean, I think I had that question this week on service, mm-hmm. uh, and I was wondering to myself, like, what are the practical implications of ordering morphine versus methadone? Uh, mm-hmm. Granted, it was not a uh, full term mm-hmm. baby like uh, that was otherwise deemed worthy of just going to the nursery. You know, it was it was a sicker child, but mm-hmm. this is an interesting discussion. And to me, um, what what one of the pieces in the results that is to me very important too is the fact that like you said the infants treated with methadone ended up receiving up to three times the opioid based Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. on morphine equivalents as infants treated with morphine alone so that's interesting and um, that's interesting and we know we know the difference between methadone and morphine but that's always nice to see in print so it's a good reminder Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, okay we have a lot of papers to cover so I'm not going to waste any time (laughs) so the next one I have is a paper that um maybe i don't know it's it's a it's a it's a technical paper but i just loved it so much <laughs> for many reasons it's uh, first author is lajos lentos from hungary in uh published in the archives of Diseases in childhood the title is acceleration during neonatal transport and its mm-hmm. impact on mechanical ventilation so that title grabbed me the background information <laughs> is very interesting obviously as as the correctly point out we're regionalizing our care which means we're relying more and more on transport and uh, even with dedicated neonatal ambulances and specialist uh, neonatal transport team postnatal transport can and certainly does present significant trauma and risk for vulnerable infants did you mention what we're all familiar with that severe ivh is also more frequent after ex-utero transport um, and it's unclear obviously whether this what what drives this association mm-hmm. we know it's there but why is it just because the baby is born at a center that cannot handle this baby that has to transfer to begin with so the baby is not really stabilized as well as it should all these things are questions we're not even going to get into um but they do mention that neonatal ground transport is associated with significant vibration mm-hmm. significant acceleration during road and traffic conditions and that uh critically ill critically ill infants requiring transport are often needing also mechanical ventilation. And so vibrations and sustained acceleration during transfer can potentially influence uh, how mechanical ventilation is delivered through a multitude of mechanisms. So they aimed to uh, look at two things. Number one, they wanted to determine the acceleration levels occurring during neonatal transfers and whether they are predominantly due to change in speed or direction of the ambulance or due to vibrations. And the second question they had was, does sustained acceleration or vibration impact the maintenance and variability of the ventilator parameters? Meaning like, is your PIP changing a lot? Is your tidal volume changing a lot because of these changes? And so the the reason I, I, I'll tell you at the end, but anyway, so study design is that it's a clinical, um, so the, the, the ventilator and ambulance acceleration data were collected from 153 infants transferred from the neonatal emergency and transport service of the Peter Cerny Foundation in Hungary between 2018 and 2020. Uh, their transport team uh, involved a neonatologist with experience in transport and a neonatal transport nurse practitioner. Um, all transfers were completed using blue light sirens and ambulance priority, which is interesting, right? I mean, if you've I've gone on transfers many mm-hmm. times, um, and um, blue lights and sirens 
makes you feel like you're going to get there faster, but it's actually quite dangerous because the ambulance mm-hmm. has to just go as fast as possible. And it mm-hmm. does increase the risk of accidents and uh, issues on the road. So if your baby is stable, my advice to you from, <laughs> from somebody who's been in a few transfers is go slow. It's fine. Just no, no need to get into an accident with a mm-hmm. critically ill baby in the back. Uh, the transport had, they were included if they lasted more than 10 minutes, uh, which is good because it means that the transports were significant. Babies received sedative medications for the transfer, but were not fully sedated or paralyzed. Um, obviously, they have to mention that all vehicles were Mercedes-Benz Sprinter vans with air suspension. <laughs> <Good to know. laughs> <laughs> it, it's, it's such a cool paper just because of all the things they report. So there are Mercedes-Benz printer vans with air suspension and uh, that are used as dedicated neonatal ambulance. And uh, the transport uh, ventilator, uh, the transport incubator was the Draeger TI 5400. Yeah. And I'm just thinking, it's an interesting point, right? Because... Um, uh, transportation vehicles are not all the same, right? And there, there is little, little. Th- I'm, I don't know anything about vehicles, but right, they're like shock absorbers and things that like would probably make a big difference for Let neonatal you, transport. Um, the amb- so when I was a fellow and we did transfers, sometimes the ambulance that would come pick you up would be an oldie. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and the shock absorbers were not like not, it's a bit like a existed. school bus, you know, like yeah, you know when you right. get on the school bus and you're like, oh, this this old is going to be rattled around a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> it's exactly right. It's exactly right. Um, the um, the ventilator that they were using is the Fabian Plus NCPAP Evolution Neonatal Ventilator which is actually made in the US apparently, I think. In any case, I was not familiar with that ventilator. Um, Okay, so um, the infants were on a vacuum pillow uh, and vacuum mattress. Uh, They collected uh, data uh, from a variety of standpoints and you can look at that, It's it's well described in the methods. Interestingly enough, their data analysis was done using Python, which is uh, which is something that is used by a lot of people for coding. And the steps describing the data analysis and processing is available on GitHub. So it's what coders use to create softwares, create stuff. So it's it's very bizarre to see these things show up on a on a scientific paper in neonatology. So for the people out there who are into coding, who are into uh, a little bit of computer science, um, just for the fact that this paper was analyzed using python and that all the all the code all the code sheets are on github is kind of neat yeah super neat <laughs> so and you know le- you know i don't care about those things but it's <laughs> it's just nice to be sharing how we're doing yeah. things right yeah i mean github is is exactly that so it's it's cool so they analyzed accelerometer and vet- ventilator ventilator data from 109 infants receiving mechanical ventilation during interhospital emergency transfers for a total duration of 82.4 hours of recording overall the acceleration component in the direction of the ambulance movement was the largest ranging between 0.16 and 1.37 meter per second squared uh, and that was uh, significantly larger than the side-to-side uh, or up or down acceleration. So obviously, the the forces felt moving in the direction in which the ambulances is driving are significantly superior to anything really the side-to-side or up and down. Uh, there was no alignment period. Uh, there was no alignment. I'm sorry between periods of high or variable accelerations and variability of tidal or minute volume respiratory rate peak inspiratory pressure, and fraction of inspired oxygen. 
as they represent different physical forces and potentially impact differently on the ventilator and the baby, they studied the impact of vibrations and sustained accelerations separately. Uh, there was no difference in the average expired tidal volume, the average peak inspiratory pressure, the average minute ventilation and fraction of inspired oxygen between these periods. No differences were seen even in extremely preterm infants. Interestingly enough, during volume-guaranteed ventilation, the tidal volume was maintained equally well during periods of high vibration compared with periods of low vibrations. During pressure-limited ventilation, the PIP was delivered as set by the users. And in SIMV, uh, without pressure support, infants did not trigger more inflation, uh, or I mean, in not in synchronized mechanical ventilation, in assist control ventilation, I apologize, this is important. The infants did not trigger more inflation during the vibration period, which is something that I actually have wondered in the past, which is as the ambulance is moving, we know that the trigger to for the ventilator to detect a baby's breath is quite mm -hmm. sensitive. Does that movement will lead to more breath? So it was interesting to see that data. Um, Another interesting result, vibration frequently made the PV loops more irregular, and they actually mm. have that displayed on the paper. And overall, the complexity expressed as the number of PV data pairs during a period of the PV loops was higher during the one-minute period with the highest vibration than during the minute with the lowest vibration. So to be honest with you, I think this is interesting, but I mean, I've seen my PV loops do sometimes funny things even in the ICU. So... Uh, I'm yeah, not sure all if, the time. Right? I know. So I'm not yeah. sure if that's such a... So in conclusion, the infants that are exposed to significant acceleration and vibration during emergency uh, transports, and while these forces do not interfere with the overall maintenance of ventilator parameters, they make the pressure volume loops more irregular. Um, I don't know what you guys are going to make with this data, mm -hmm. but if you've ever wondered, like, what are some of the forces these babies are exposed to in uh, in an ambulance? I think this is kind of nice to see this data out there. Kudos to the people from mm -hmm. uh, Hungary. Uh, very cool paper. Yeah, I would have liked to see just even more of the, like, vital sign data, right? Mm. Because it, in my observations. Yeah, it seems like respiratory rate goes up, heart rate goes up, blood pressure goes up. We know all mm -hmm. of those things, which may in and of itself explain some of the findings. I'm going to look. Maybe that data is out there. I'm going to do a little digging. Do a little digging. Okay. My turn then. Yeah. Um, so this next paper, um, multi-systemic inflammatory syndrome in neonates, a systematic review. Um, lead author, uh, Lena A. Uh, Scheiba. Um, journal Neonatology. It's a collaboration. Um, there are authors from Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and Mount Sinai in Toronto. Um, and basically what they were trying to do um, was compile some of these smaller case reports um, and case series of babies who have uh, the MISN um, which we think is related to the MISC, multisystemic inflammatory syndrome in children um, seen after COVID infection. So um, MISN in, in neonates, just like in children, is thought to be related to immune-mediated multisystem injury due to transplacental transfer of maternal um, SARS-CoV-2 antibodies or late response to neonatal-mounted antibodies. They included any article 
like I said, that was a case report or case series, cohort study, or retrospective observational study, or even a correspondence without major patient data um, so that they could get as much information as possible. And so basically, they categorized neonates um, as having MISN as babies who either met the WHO or the CDC criteria for MISC, since we haven't totally all agreed on a definition um, for it in neonates. The only difference for those who don't know about the WHO and the CDC criteria was duration of fever. The babies also had, a, had to either have confirmed infection or exposure um, to um, uh, SARS-CoV-2 infection before 28 days of age and who presented before 28 days of age um, with exclusion of other causes for their symptoms. They also wanted to look at which babies had early um, MISN within 72 hours after birth or late beyond 72 hours of age. So they found a total of 16 studies reporting on 47 neonates. Um, there were 14 case reports, two case series. And one thing that, again, I think is interesting is they had 15 quote-unquote confirmed cases, so the babies met all the criteria, and 32 suspected cases. So <laughs> I'm not sure all the babies met all the criteria. And I'll talk about one um, component in particular, um, since fever is a definitive component of the WHO and the CDC criteria, there were only fever in 17 of the babies, 36%. So hmm. I don't know what to make of that but I'll tell you what else was in the paper. Um, they had 34 neonates um, in the early group, so within 72 hours, and 13 in the late group, which I was also surprised by. Um, and then they talked about basically what were the common, I mean, what were the presentations like? So the most common presentations were actually cardiovascular. And I think this is useful because there really aren't so many things that cause um, cardiovascular compromise in, in neonates um, mm -hmm. early on. So 77% of the babies in this group um, had some cardiovascular finding. And the findings were cardiac dysfunction in 14, arrhythmia in 11, dilated coronaries and arteries in 5, um, pericardial effusion in 4, PPHN in 3, and an intracardiac thrombus in 2 of the babies. Regarding lab testing, again, so <clears throat> not all of the studies reported on all of the lab tests. So eight babies who had troponins tested, uh, all of them had high troponins, eight out of eight. Eighty-four percent of those tested, which was not everybody, had elevated D-dimer. Sixty-seven percent of those tested had elevated um, ESRs. 65% of those tested had elevated CRPs, 63% had anemia, 60% had elevated BNPs, 48% high ferritin, 48% high lactate, 30% lymphopenia, 29% with high prolactins. Uh, but sorry, I'm sorry, not prolactin at all. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. 29% uh, had high procalcitonins. 28% had thrombocytopenia, 21% uh, had uh, neutrophilia. They reported on chest x-rays, actually only 18 infants of these babies got chest x-rays. 11 had opacities, 4 had cardiomegaly, cardiomegaly, 3 had pulmonary edema, and 3 were quote-unquote normal. And then they talk about 
how did they identify um, the SARS-CoV-2 exposure, which is complicated. So they had a maternal car- SARS-CoV-2 swabs positive for 13 out of um, these uh, 23 moms who had them, so 37% of mothers. Um, but serology was positive in um, 87% of mothers. Among neonates, 27% had a positive RT-PCR test um, for SARS-CoV-2, but um, uh, 19 out of 26, almost two-thirds, had a negative PCR test. 21 had no PCR test done. Hmm. 85% of the neonates had positive serologies. Um, 32 neonates had positive IgG, um, and two had, quote-unquote, nonspecific positive serology. Um, seven babies had no serologies reported. So, again, you know, uh, when we talk about exposure, I mean, babies had some evidence of of exposure. Most neonates actually received immunoglobulin as part of their treatment, almost 77%. The dose of immunoglobulin ranged between one gram per kilo uh, for one or two doses or a one to two gram per kilo dose once. Um, and then, uh, most neonates also receive steroids as part of the management, 83%. Um, they gave, um, some other immune modulators, um, in very few patients, um, 60% of babies needed respiratory support, 45% of babies needed ionotropic support, um, 40% of neonates received heparin. Um, 89% of these babies survived till discharge. Five neonates died. Two neonates died due to multi-organ dysfunction. Two neonates died due to shock with left ventricular dysfunction. One neonate died due to uh, necrotizing enterocolitis. Lengths of hospital stay ranged between six days to 11 weeks. Um, but some of those babies were preterm. Um, and so that impacted, obviously, their length of stay. The only other interesting, I mean, there's lots of potentially interesting things we could talk about here, um, but they wanted to provide um, kind of more clinical features. So if you are having suspicion of a post-COVID exposure multi-inflammatory syndrome of of things to look for, Um, the only thing um, I think uh, that they that I'll note is that when they talk about when is the most likely time of presentation, that it really depends on what time, when is the exposure Um, and and that antibody production may take two to four weeks. So this may complicate presentation findings. Thoughts? You don't have any thoughts? No, yeah, I don't have. (laughs) You have a lot of thoughts. No, I actually have no (laughs) thoughts. My question to you is Daphna, would you, if you had to use now the data presented in this paper, mm. um, what would you say, what would you say, if a, a kid shows up in the NICU and has uh, COVID, right? Had this MISN, mm-hmm. um, what do you think is the, is, the, is the group of symptoms you should be seeing then? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting because it's not even so much these clinical symptoms. It's really evidence of inflammation. Right. Um, so the babies present really in a sepsis-like picture. And that can be, as we know, in babies, a whole the constellation of symptoms varies um, significantly. 
but and I think if we have, or, or babies, at least I guess, I guess I, I don't mean to put you on the spot either. Oh, yeah. No, but I'm saying um, when I say this, I mean I don't mean to ask you like, all right, like what is the definition then? But I'm saying right. like, what would what would make you suspicious? Like, right? I'm thinking yeah, if I'm that's if I'm a listener and I'm saying, all right, like I listen to this to this report now. I have a baby showing up in the NICU, some respiratory distress. Like, how do I know? Like, should I, when do I know when to be suspicious of MIS? Exactly. So I think it's like when we were in pediatric residency and you're like, is this Kawasaki? I don't know. And, you know, did it matter what the preceding viral infection was? So, I mean, I think this would be a sick baby with no, um, you know, bacterial or viral, right? You sent the viral panel. There's nothing else is positive. I think mm-hmm. you should suspect it if there was a recent COVID exposure. And why does it matter? Because <laughs> potentially you would treat it with steroids or immunoglobulin if you had a high suspicion. Right. So um, that's what so, I think. I don't know. What do you think? Well, I'm thinking... <laughs> Um, a baby that shows up with respiratory distress and cardiovascular compromise, like mm-hmm. low, and mm-hmm. and obviously these would really make me think of sepsis to begin with. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's like you said, it's inflammation, so it's not. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's interesting what you mentioned also about the fever. That right, it's not like it is. It is there quite often, but it's not like a go-to thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's not a go-to thing so <laughs> so it, it i mean i feel like unless feel we make like it this, a criteria and then it is a good thing you have to do. <laughs> yeah but when you see that it's only present in like 36 percent, right is that 36 mm-hmm. percent you said mm-hmm. or something like mm-hmm. that it's 36 about 36 percent um <clears throat> then then it's not something that like if you're saying all right like 64 mm-hmm. percent of the kids may not yeah, have hang it your like, hat on yeah so what I'm saying is it's very interesting for me to see this paper, which is a systematic review uh, of people who have done the, the work to look for these cases. And I don't think this paper gives us a nice little vignette that you can say, oh, I'm not going to miss right. that. Right? It's, right. It's, so be on yeah, the Yeah, no, I think it's it's babies who are looking like sepsis and you don't have another explanation. Or these strange cardiovascular findings with no... Other explanation would be another reason. Right. All right. right. We got to hustle like a lot. <laughs> Let me go quick. My next paper is a paper in the Journal of Pediatrics. It's from Montreal. Its first author is Gabriella Leblanc. And Gabriella Leblanc, if we're pronouncing it mm. the French way, organizational mm-hmm. risk factors and clinical impacts of unplanned extubation in the NICU. Um, God knows we're all working constantly on reducing the number of unplanned extubation. Uh, So this paper looked at organizational variables, such as the nurse provision rates, um, the the nursing overtime ratio, the unit occupancy, and trying to see how all these system-based stuff impact uh, the number of unplanned extubations. Mm -hmm. So the question, there's two questions that they're officially uh, stating. Number one, they're trying to assess the association between organizational variables and unplanned extubation in the NICU among infants on mechanical ventilation and to evaluate the association between these unplanned extubation and BPD in a subgroup of babies that are less than 30 mm-hmm. weeks. So this is a retrospective cohort study that included all infants admitted to the Montreal Children's Hospital, McGill University Hospital Center NICU between 2016 and 2019. Um, 
they have administrative database that links basically all the things they need to look at the nurse to patient ratio, the overtime, the occupancy, obviously. So that's, that doesn't, uh, it's not really difficult. Um, the number of uh, recommended nurses based on the number of patients physically present in the NICU along with their corresponding dependency category using provincial guidelines. Uh, and those were that if a baby is deemed quote unquote unstable, that's uh, a one to one uh, assignment. A baby that's in intensive care requires, it's it's just it's just awkward to say it like this, but intensive care requires 0.7 nurse, intermediate mm. care 0.3 nurse, and mm. continuing care 0.25 nurse. So obviously, a continuing care patient means that you can have a one nurse to four patients ratio, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but it's a bit, I don't mean to be demeaning or disrespectful to our nursing uh, colleagues. So, but that's how they presented it. And I don't want to do the math as to what 0.7 right. <laughs> really uh <laughs> So yeah, um, okay. So the data on the unplanned events were uh, retrieved from uh, a specific database that they have documenting and tracking that. And um, yeah, the inclusion criteria, they looked at any babies on mechanical ventilation um, and the clinical data was taken from the data that they're collecting for the Canadian neonatal network database. Uh, they did some propensity score matching. So to assess the association between unplanned extubation and outcomes for babies that are less than 29 weeks, they created a propensity score matched cohort using the following criteria, the gestational age, mechanical ventilation, admitted before three days, of, uh, before three days after birth, um, having no major congenital anomalies and a bunch of other stuff, and they run and they and they match them one to one based on this propensity score matching, um, and they looked at obviously BPD was defined as oxygen requirement at thirty six weeks, um, and that's it. Let's get into the results. We're short on time. Mm -hmm. So in terms of organizational factors associated with the risk of unplanned extubation among intubated infants, um, they had. 2,775 infants admitted to the NICU during the study period, 25% of which, of which received mechanical ventilation. The median length of mechanical ventilation was three days. So, so really, really impressive mm -hmm. stuff. A total of 113 unplanned extubation events were recorded among 87 patients in this study. Um, 66 infants had one event, 17 had two, three had three, and one baby had four unplanned mm. exhibition. We've all taken care of that one kid who mm. just manages to get that tube. Uh, uh -huh. Uh, and that corresponded to 2.1 unplanned extubation per 100 days of mechanical ventilations. Uh, most unplanned extubations, 62% of them were quote-unquote related to care. And what that means is a loose tape or they were doing something mm -hmm. with the baby and the tube came loose. Uh, so that's what they mean by related to care, quote-unquote. Um, overall, there were uh, about 1,200 1200 days with no unplanned extubation and 108 days with more than one uh, unplanned extubation per day. Mm. In the unadjust in the unadjusted comparison, days with unplanned extubation compared with days without had higher overtime. Like the nurses were using overtime more and more numbers of infants on mechanical ventilation. So um, the number of days, the number of babies on mechanical ventilation 
makes sense, right? I mean, the more you're mm-hmm. going to have, the more likely you are to get an unplanned But the nursing overtime ratio was actually interesting, right? That uh, they noticed that when they had a higher overtime ratio, the number of unplanned extubation increased. The association of overtime ratio with higher odds of unplanned extubation remained significant in the mm. adjusted analysis. So um, this is very, very cool. Uh, mm-hmm. In terms of the nursing provision ratio, we're going to give a big kudos to our nurses because that was not a factor. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, that was not significantly statistically significant. Also, the unit occupancy rate was not a factor. I was hoping it would show that they needed lower nursing ratios. <laughs> That's what I was hoping. I know, it would show. I know. <laughs> but but I mean. Again, we're going to talk to you about a project that we're doing, uh, another project we're doing that's super inspirational, in my opinion. And it goes to show that I think you tell a nurse you're going to have four babies and they will um, multiply themselves. They find a way. How yeah. do they do it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I don't think that it means. I think it's not. An, it's not showing. I'm taking so much time. I'm sorry, but it is not showing that the nurse ratio is okay. It's showing that our nurses right. will go above right. and beyond, no matter how many mm-hmm. babies. And we see this in our unit because obviously everybody's struggling with finding mm-hmm. nurses these days because everybody went on travel assignments and stuff. But. Uh, you tell a nurse you have three sick babies and they run the whole shift and they take care of these babies. So yeah, that was my shout out to our nursing friends. Mm-hmm. Um, outcomes of intubated babies less than 29 weeks. There there were 190 intubated infants less than 29 weeks that met the inclusion criteria and their median length of mechanical ventilation was about 13 days. Out of these infants, 29% had at least one unplanned extubation. And uh, the median age at which the first unplanned extubation happened was 15 days. I thought that was interesting because sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, in the beginning, you're careful. And anyway, compared with infants without unplanned extubation, the babies who had uh, unplanned extubation had a longer, and that's only in the less than 29 weeks, as I mentioned just a second mm-hmm. ago, these infants had a longer total length of mechanical ventilation um, and no significant difference in the odds of BPD. Um, let's, uh, a few more things. <laughs> Among infants <laughs> with unplanned extubation, 59% were reintubated and 49% mm-hmm. had two or more unplanned extubation events. Among the 49 reintubations, the, the 49% reintubation, uh, 71% of them occurred within one hour of the uh, unplanned extubation, um, and 13 happened between one to 24 hours, and 2% between one and seven days. So um, it was interesting to see that uh, most of them, usually desaturations is the is the 63% of the time the reason for an immediate need to uh, reintubate. Mm-hmm. In terms of the sensitivity analysis, that's what I wanted to get to. Sensitivity analysis using non-conditional logistic regression models among the complete cohort of infants born at less than 29 weeks, which was about 200 babies, showed similar results. Um, so when they looked at the sensitivity analysis, they found that there were higher odds of BPD among infants with unplanned extubation who were reintubated when compared with infants without unplanned extubation. Mm-hmm. But they found no association between BPD rates and unplanned extubation in the non-reintubated infants with unplanned extubation compared to the babies that ha- that didn't have an unplanned extubation. Mm-hmm. You'll have to play that over to 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 get <laughs> you could just go to the paper. But um no, but I think I think that was um, that was very interesting. Um, that really you reached that level of significance where 
like yeah so it was it was interesting that you needed to have an, an unplanned extubation reintubated and that was actually uh more predictive of a risk of bpd down the road than if you never had an unplanned extubation so mm -hmm. um okay so the conclusion was that the nursing overtime ratio is associated with increased unplanned extubations in the NICU and among babies that are less than 29 weeks reintubation after an unplanned extubation is associated with increased length of mechanical ventilation and odds of bpd compared to infants without unplanned extubation all right that's it definitely i'm done with my paper okay but that was uh, good that, right? was that was good. That, was, a good that was good. And you know, we we are recently having a discussion about I know. unplanned extubations. I know. I know. So, I know. so it's nice. Like it's not nice to see, but that that everybody's still trying to solve the problem. Yep. Yep. Um, I will be quick, and then I know you have some, uh, as we call it, uh, rapid, <laughs> rapid papers to go through. Which I've been um, starting so, already. Rapid fire. <laughs> yeah. So this one, um, it's actually, I mean, right now as it stands, a pre-proof active treatment of infants born at 22 to 25 weeks gestation in California. Uh, it was a 2011 to 2018. This is coming out of the California Perinatal Quality Care Collaborative um, in the Journal of Pediatrics. Um, so they're really looking at trends of active treatment and factors associated with active treatment um, in uh, these um, very uh, premature babies, 22 to 25 weeks. So I'll just, I guess, get into the meat of the paper. Um, they had 9,000 infants born in 132 of the hospitals um, between 22 and 25 weeks. Um, and I'll just get to the primary outcomes, I guess. They looked at, again, active treatment, and they defined active treatment as either intubation, mechanical ventilation, CPR, and or CPAP or NIPFI, where the infants survive greater than 12 hours of life. And I'm just going to highlight this because they said this was to avoid including infants where they were using palliative respiratory support, um, but not aimed at prolonging life, which is not something that is done in the majority of institutions. Um, and so it is an opportunity maybe for parents to spend more time with their babies yeah. when they're anticipating. And, and um, correct me if I'm wrong. What they mean by that is that you're delivering some uh -huh. form of oxygen support that is clearly uh -huh. not appropriate for the degree of illness correct. that the patient is experiencing. So for example, you would give I'm, give, I'm being very simple. It's like, yeah. yeah, simple my description, but it's like you're giving like blow by to a baby that's that's passing away, right? You just just yeah. right. Okay, fine. That's what they yeah. mean. Got it. I mean, but I mean, they were using I mean C CPAP or NIMV in a family who did not want intensive care. Does that make right. sense? Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. So um, what they really wanted to look at. So the overall um, active treatment was 19% in 22-week infants. And what was interesting is that this has not changed significantly between 2011 and 2018. In 23-weekers, this has changed significantly over time, ranges from 64% in 2011 to 83% in 2018. And we're at a point where we're greater than 94% of active treatment for 24 to 25-weekers. Mm -hmm. um, this didn't um, increase significantly significantly over time in the 24-week group, but it did increase significantly for 25-weekers. Um, interestingly, the rates of active treatment were increased significantly if, say, you were day four to six of the week versus zero to three days. So if you were 22 and five days, you were much more likely to get active treatment than if you were 22 and zero days, um, which makes sense. But this was found across all weeks of gestation. And now Fact people are going to say, well, 23 and 22 and three versus 22 and four, maybe I should. <laughs> 
<laughs> right. We're going to move the needle further back Just now. a little bit. <laughs> Um, factors associated with increased odds of active treatment included um, maternal reported Hispanic ethnicity, maternal reported black race, P-PROM, bleeding, antenatal steroids, and cesarean section. Factors associated with decreased odds of active treatment included lower gestational age and being small for gestational age. Interestingly, centers with lower levels of care had increased odds of active treatment when compared to level four units. And I mean, there's a lot to digest there actually, but we, we have to move on. So That's those are the data. That's interesting. What do you think that is? So they talked about, uh, see, you, you're holding us up, but they talked about a lot of uh, possibilities that um, maybe if it was an unexpected um, delivery where you couldn't have um, the prenatal consultation, you know, they were just coming in and delivering um, at a low level, a lo like a lower level NICU um, availability um, that they would resuscitate, or maybe they weren't as comfortable having those prenatal conversations about not resuscitating. Interesting. But. Interesting. Okay. Rapid fire, um, rapid fire articles. Let's go. Where's my page? Okay. So the articles that I wanted to mention, there's an article in neonatology called left ventricular dysfunction persists in the first week after rewarming following therapeutic mm -hmm. hypothermia for hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy. First author, Pani Kiran Yajmanyam. Uh, this is uh, uh, data out of the UK. Um, and really there, the, the idea of the paper was they did serial... Um, my, they, they, they assessed serial myocardial function in newborn infants receiving uh, therapeutic hypothermia in moderate to severe uh, HIE. They did, they did these echocardiography in 20-term infants uh, between day on days one to three and again after rewarming. What was very interesting is that all myocardial velocities were significantly lower um, in the cases on day one, they increased during therapeutic hypothermia, but the left ventricular indices remained consistently lower compared to controls even after rewarming. Left ventricular myocardial performance index was higher in cases compared to controls on day one, improved during therapeutic hypothermia, but remained again abnormal after rewarming. And so this paper is interesting because I think it goes to... Um, give us information really when we think, all right, therapeutic hypothermia is completed, we're right. I mean, mm -hmm. um, and, and it's good to know that, um, that the, the, the we, we, sh we can anticipate some left ventricular dysfunction potentially after rewarming. So an interesting paper, mm -hmm. um, a very cool article. I'm not going to talk too much about it. Intrapulmonary in neonatology, intrapulmonary volume changes during hiccups versus spontaneous breaths mm -hmm. in a preterm infant. Uh, first author, Vincent Gertner, um, basically they had, they had this baby, it's a report of a single case, but they had this baby enrolled in a trial for like nebulized surfactant. So they had all this, all this stuff hooked up to the baby and the baby had hiccups. And so they're reporting a little bit as to what exactly happens. Um, so about what, what exactly happens when a baby has a spell of hiccups and, uh, compared lung volume changes during hiccups with spontaneous breathing, uh, using electrical impedance tomography, um, what they report briefly is that hiccups mostly occur during the expiratory phase of breathing mm -hmm. and are associated with a shorter eye time and a shorter inspiratory time and a larger tidal volume compared with spontaneous breath. Makes sense. Vol yeah. Volume changes were mainly restricted to the larger airways, but some gas flow also reached the lung parenchyma. It's just, it's a cool paper. Um, mm -hmm. Kudos to them. Mm -hmm. um, 
um, there was a very interesting article in uh, pediatric pulmonology uh, called Prediction of Weaning Readiness of Nasal CPAP in Preterm Infants Using Point-of-Care Lung Ultrasound. Uh, we have some episodes coming your way about point-of-care ultrasound. First mm -hmm. author is Mohammed Abdelmala. This is from Saudi Arabia. <clears throat> and so basically, they're going through a system that you could use where you can use the Lung Ultrasound Severity Score, the X-PLUSC, and also the um, the LTR, the long tidal recruitment, and they're basically showing you images of uh, long ultrasound and actually doing uh, creating an algorithm where using these 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 two numbers you can actually predict babies that would be successfully weaned off nasal CPAP. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to get into too much of the details. The outcomes are pretty interesting and they're significant. So take a look at that. Um, I wanted to give a shout out to our friend, uh, our Twitter friend Lindsay. Naki, Lindsay, I hope I'm pronouncing your last name correctly, uh, who published in, um, I think it's the Journal of Pediatrics, a paper called Factors Associated with Initial Tidal Volume Selection During Neonatal mm -hmm. Volume Targeted Ventilation in Two NICUs, a Retrospective Cohort studies, cohort Study. Um, they wanted to see if people were using, what kind of tidal volume were people using? And so they did this multi-center retrospective observational study in two NICUs of uh, including 300-something infants on volume targeted ventilation. <clears throat> and what they found was that uh, depending on the the birth weight, um, the tidal volumes were a bit different. So for babies that were less than one kilo, people tended to use uh, five uh, and sometimes a bit more six ml per kilo tidal volume. But for babies that were uh, bigger, uh, the tidal volumes mostly were around five. And they compared that. There's a very nice graph that we'll post on Twitter where they're looking at the literature-informed tidal volume range, and they were showing that people actually are being consistent with the evidence, which is not always that we're consistent mm -hmm. with the evidence. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, so the conclusion is that most infants usually receive an initial tidal volume of five, um, but but for most infants, that was consistent. And I think the scattering of the dots on that graph is very interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, last paper. Sequelae associated with systemic hypertension in infants with severe bronchopulmonary dysplasia. First author, Arvind Sigal from Australia. The goal of the paper was to ascertain the correlation between systemic hypertension, right? So we're not talking about pulmonary hypertension. Mm -hmm. We're talking about systemic hypertension and respiratory sequelae among infants with BPD. Um, and so what they found was that for babies with BPD, they were more likely to have hypertension. And then they looked at their, their, their mean blood pressure, their systolic blood pressure. It was pretty compelling stuff. And the only reason I wanted to mention that paper is because the, the authors are gutsy enough to actually talk about why do we think this mm -hmm. we're noticing this. And so they're going to just read you this little paragraph. It says that the mechanisms underlying the higher blood pressure in infants with BPD um, could have multiple underlying explanations. And they're saying hypoxia and hypercarbia increase systemic vascular resistance through stimulation of peripheral arterial chemoreceptors. The latter could cause catecholamine release and increased vasomotor tone, decreased pulmonary vascular resistance, uh, sorry, decreased pulmonary vascular clearance, or even net production of circulatory catecholamines has previously been noted in infants with BPD. Inflammation causes abnormal collagen deposition and endothelial dysfunction via multiple pro-inflammatory cytokines complementing the role of angiotensin 2. So it's an interesting it's an interesting paper because even if you're not going to leave the paper with a good understanding as to why exactly this happened because that's not really well known yet mm -hmm. it's it was we we see this all the time that that mm -hmm. these babies very often have have uh 
elevated blood pressure. So it was kind of nice. There's a nice graph as well that we'll post on Twitter. That's it. You have even more papers in the in the folder. I know. <laughs> Are you going to post them all? The links? Mm, the links? Uh, I could post all the links. Yeah. Yeah. Let's. Sure. Okay. Sure. All right. That's definitely all we have time for. All right. That sounds good. Uh, don't forget to grab your CME credits and mm -hmm. uh, on the website, on the, epi on the episodes page. Um, thank you to everybody. Thank you, Daphne, for your patience. For sure. For sure. If people are having trouble, just let us know. That sounds good. Okay. Bye. <laughs> bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Incubator. If you liked this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcast or the Apple Podcast website. You can find other episodes of the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or the podcast app of your choice. We would love to hear from you, so feel free to send us questions, comments, or suggestions to our email address, nikupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Instagram or Twitter at nikupodcast. Personally, I am on Twitter at Dr. Nikku, spelled D-R-N-I-C-U, and Daphna is at Dr. Daphna MD. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you. Thank you.